Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the You Should Run podcast. I'm your host, Tony Heil, council member in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania. And if you listen to my podcast before, which I hope you have, you know I've talked to people at all levels of office, from school board, not that there's anything wrong with school board, it's the most important office, all the way up to state representative, state senator, state auditor, mayors, members of Congress, and U.S. Senate as well, uh, with Senator Bob Casey and Senate candidates like John Fetterman. Uh, talked with every state, including Montana, where I've met some great people like Barbara Bissett and Jessica Karjala. And today I'm excited to talk to someone who might be a congressman from Montana. He's also served in the legislature in Montana. And I'm going to ask him a question from the start here when we get into it about maybe he has a secret pass that um, the voters don't know about. But uh, his name is Tom Winter. And if you've been you know paying attention to the calendar, Winter is coming and maybe Winter is coming to Congress as well, and he's going to tell us a little bit about that. So, Tom, thank you for joining today. Thank you, Tony. I'm excited to be your third favorite Montanan on the show. Maybe well, Who knows? We'll see where it ranks. We haven't gotten that far yet. But, <laughs> but you might be my first favorite because looking at your, you know, your uh, social media pictures, and your name is Tom, are you actually Tom from MySpace? Is that how you got famous? Oh my! I, I gotta. I'm gonna betray my age. I have no idea what you're talking about. I missed. I missed MySpace by like four or five years. Four or five years. It, it wasn't like it was 25 years ago. Ugh. I'm 35. I don't even. Honestly, I didn't have MySpace. I'm. I'm gonna sound like a baby here. What, what is Tom from MySpace? So MySpace was like right before Facebook. So it wasn't like yeah. 10 years before. So you know, you would have been in your 20s or like early, maybe 20, and it was. Um, you know, when you had it, it was it didn't look as good as Facebook. And if you signed on, your first friend was Tom. He was everyone's friend, and no one ever knew anything about Tom. I don't even know. I think his name was like Tom Anderson or whatever. But he uh, he was the one you were friends with from the start, and you had your top eight friends. And it was very '90s, even though it was in the 2000s. So um, we won't hold your youth and inexperience against you at this time, like Reagan would say. Well. Let me- let me try and make up for it over the course of the next 30 minutes, okay? Let's see what we can do. Um, so, but that means your political awakenings, your involvement in politics may have come later than mine. Your involvement, I always ask people, you know, because you didn't just up and one day decide, I'm going to be in office, I'm going to run for Congress, uh, I'm going to run for state rep. Do you remember when you first became politically aware and active? Is it in your family or is there like some issue or campaign that kind of got you engaged? Not just as a voter, but it was like putting in some thought and effort. As a, well, and as a human too. I mean, I, I really, um, you know, I want to say as an American, but this sounds so hokey. Uh, the, I, I, you know, I really do believe that everyone is politically engaged already. And I, I so I, I'm not differing with the question here, but I guess I am. Like, you know, no one isn't doing something political in the daily life that they're living, especially sometimes when they're not getting the services they need. And that's not me like glossing over this question. I mean, honestly, mm-hmm. I have had to look back and think when people have asked me that, you know, when exactly was that moment? And my, um, there wasn't one. I, you know, my mom, or especially, um, you know, everyone loves their mom, but she, can we curse on this podcast? I'll I try to not you. To. It might help you in Montana. I don't care. <laughs> my, look, my mom's a total badass oh, yeah. and everyone's mom is, but she was, um, she was really active in um, protests against the Iraq war. Uh, you know, we were, she was involved in Planned Parenthood in Kansas and mid Missouri when, during kind of what they called the abortion wars, when mm-hmm. they were murdering doctors yeah. um, like Dr. Tiller. And that's where I grew up. 
And um, it was a, um, I, it's hard to describe, I think, because our family had some issues there as well, where we were kind of targeted in a very small way, people, um, and by kind of forces that didn't seem to understand what it would mean to um, come after like a young family, when I was a kid in this case, um, because of their views on a woman's right to choose specifically, but I mean, just in general, and, and we were, we, it was an awakening in the sense of that there is something going on here, fundamentally misunderstanding what it means to be engaged, that they mm -hmm. would come after us or my mother, rather than, you know, a system that's taking advantage of them, or just try and move things through the political process. Um, in Montana, though, like, you know, I, um, I ran against my, um, my legislature, my, the man who is representing me in the legislature, uh, because he told a group of people that people on Medicaid were um, poor and lazy. And that offended me. Yeah. So there's kind of, times, you know, I, I think everyone is political. And so when I was younger, I kind of was steeped in at least a little bit of activism for my family. But when I, when I realized I needed to be involved, that was that moment. Um, and I just, some things, sometimes people say things and they kind of stick in your craw and, and you know, you have to do something about it. So. Uh, no, I think that's a great answer. And I think it's really cool to know that your mom is a, an example and an influence. And I think that's, I think for you and for me, you know, politics being in the family is important. My mom was just showing me like her campaign buttons from Carter and Kennedy and uh, McGovern. I, she found one. I was like, wow, this is, you need to save that. I have it in my office now at home at work. Like, um, do you think, I mean, I think that, you know, it is, uh, it, talk about. it is probably embarrassing that I just said, you know, like my mom's the coolest person and I didn't have a MySpace. So maybe that says the kind of guy I was in the early 2000s. <laughs> but MySpace was around then. Like if you can remember that terrible stuff. It's not like, saying, maybe, maybe it wasn't that cool. I like politics, you know, who knows? Fine. I probably wasn't that Well, that was like when, at that time, politics online was like blogging and, you know, maybe emails. It's gotten a lot different then. You're very active on Twitter and social media, from what I can tell. Um, more, uh, definitely more active than people were then because it didn't exist. Uh -huh. um, and so your awareness of things is different, I'm sure, then when you're still a little bit separated from the immediacy of things, right? Do you think now, now that you've been involved in politics as a legislator and candidate, um, is the speed of politics just maybe too fast? I, um, you know, I can say that in Montana, it's probably about as slow as it can get, okay. um, considering where we are yeah. and our pace of things. I, I really actually, I don't, I don't, I, I really do think that this is, I know everyone and I, I have my problems with social media being always on having to share, you know, feeling the need to share things about your personal self that, you know, I honestly don't think it's healthy for mm -hmm. the candidate or the public servant and also for the public to really know necessarily what I ate for breakfast, but you know, if that is something that will elicit change or get people onto a cause, I'm who cares, honestly. But in terms of the speed at which it occurs, people need people's radical re, I think, reappraisal of what it means to be involved in the news, whatever that means, but also in what's happening in the country and in your community and knowing immediately is not a bad thing. I know that the last 10 years, five years have been horrible. Um, and everyone, I think, says that. Uh, and in politics and in pandemic, et cetera, right. and in inequality. But we are aware of these things in a more visceral way because they're being told to us immediately. And I, I, I understand that that has caused massive upheaval around the world and the country, but 
what would you prefer? Would we prefer that we don't know that the Capitol is being stormed in real time? Right. What would that would that make? A, you know, that I, I don't even you know, like some the guy on a black and white screen five hours later says today they took over the United States Capitol. I mean, it was useful for us to know that information. But at the same time, of course, the the media being what it is and social media being what it was, many of the people insurrectionists organized on social media and utilized it as a tool to, you know, to galvanize their supporters. So I, it does cut both ways, but I, I really think it's an unmitigated good, no matter what the effect, which is a maybe a controversial statement, that like citizens are aware as fast and as and as fully as they can be of what their government's doing and what's happening in the world. I just you know, I think we're still sorting out how to deal with that. But, um, you know, that's going to take a generation. Well, you're right. Thing, everything has a good and a bad. I I like being plugged in. I like learning about things. Um, and sometimes I think that something's alarmist or doomer. And sometimes it's maybe too much. So I have to look for other sources. And maybe you and I are trained to do that. But other people aren't. Um, but one of the reasons I was interested in talking to you, in addition to just liking Montana, it seems like a cool place. Um <laughs> John Tester is one of my favorite senators, and um, you know I, I like the other people I've talked with there. But you're, from what I can tell, you are a very upbeat person. You do not seem like guys like why should we even bother? Everything's terrible. It's a like the world's falling apart. Um, am I misreading that? Or are you actually like? Do you have some optimism? And what gives you that optimism? You know, it's so funny because you caught me on a morning where I honestly like woke up and I was like, oh, all is lost. Oh, great. <laughs> really? And it's not. And so this is the least, um, this is the, this is the least exuberant or um, excited I will be about this. But I, I yes, I, I do understand that things are bad. And I, but what the forces are arrayed against us uh, and those are corporations trying to take our power those are corrupt politicians. Those are, you know, not all bosses are bad. That's your boss trying to steal your work hours, mm -hmm. et cetera. Those, those forces, they depend on our despair and they depend on us giving up on our institutions. And I do, um, you know, our, there is a, and I, I know I'm a Democrat often labeled as a progressive. I, I also find myself, I hope to be very small C conservative in my belief radical power of what we've been given and mm -hmm. this idea that and that's in our government and that, that everything is lost that nothing can move or change it, the only reason that happens is because the forces arrayed against us depend on us giving up they want this to be unpleasant they want us to be demoralized they want us to be grossed out by the actions of the people who are trying to harm us and a lot of times that's our elected officials mm -hmm. and i a refusal to let that happen is I think a somewhat radical act nowadays. And I, I refuse to allow them to beat me down. Or when I was in the legislature, I, you know, I served as the essentially the avatar of my voters. If I gave up, it was means that they were giving up within the process. And, and that was unacceptable to me. So, and I, I often have also looked to people and this is something I, I think you have a more wonky audience. I, I, in Montana, I'm not going to go around using the word joy too often, just because there's other ways to describe it that I think are more relatable. But there is a there must be a joy in public service. Mm -hmm. It must bring this idea that what we are doing is not only vital but but fun, and something that you can do and be a happy warrior for your community. And it's sometimes I have to lie about that, but I. Um, it's a it's a it's a time when a politician is lying for a good reason. 
Yeah, and I th- and I understand where you're coming from. You're not being necessarily deceptive, but you have to like put your game face on, type of thing. Yeah, I mean, I've you know, look, I'm I'm not the biggest team sports guy. I'm more into like hiking, skiing, and stuff. But you know, I, I it's the analogies are there, and that like when you are you are part of a team, one of the things, the worst things you can do is to ruin morale by saying we're going to lose because we're not. Right. We're going to lose if we say we're going to lose, and we are. We if we give up in terms of literally our our. I, I believe honestly in the the power of our earnest belief to be able to make change. And if we make that not a fun, engaging enterprise, then it, we've already lost and it's over. Because all, what are we going to get? A bunch of like dour corporate people or a bunch of people who hate democracy. Mm-hmm. You have to want people in this job and in this role and in public leadership who also take great like fulfillment out of it. So one thing about losing, though, is that no Democrat has won this particular seat in Montana for many, many years because it hasn't existed, right? The new demographics, the uh, new census, there's two congressional seats in Montana. Um, One, what's, what's changing about Montana? Is it, or is it just like slight growth? And two, as a result, why did you decide, you know what? Montana needs winter all the time. (laughs) I don't think anyone in Montana is going to say that. Uh, you know, let the record show that when you said this, I leaned back in my chair and put my head behind my hands and was like, well, let me tell you. <laughs> Look, I, Montana is changing, um, but that's not why I'm involved. What has happened is we get a new – so we're blessed, honestly, with one of the few independent redistricting commissions in the country, which to your listeners, um, if you don't already know, means that gerrymandering doesn't really happen here. We, we really do have a – a more functioning, I believe, democratic system in the state of Montana. So which really independent redistricting commission decided the boundaries of our new districts. It's not like in literally anywhere else where kind of look Texas, where you have like Dan Crenshaw's district, with which looks like Pac-Man devouring Austin, Texas or something. So it, one thing that is, I think, really baseline to this is things in a sense have not changed. Montana has maintained its democratic integrity in a way that I believe other places have not. And so it gives my my hopeful constituents, but me and my community, a, a shot at making a difference through the political process. And so has Montana changed? In that way, it has not. In other ways, we are facing, I know everyone talks about how the affordability, the cost of housing, but we have had a multiple percentage increase in the amount of people living in our state during COVID. Mm-hmm. It is the, you know, the what? The median sale price in our second biggest city, Bozeman, for a house is over a million dollars. The minimum wage is like eight bucks. We are not a rich place. And what is happening specifically to where we are is that the inequality that has been experienced, at least the economic inequality that's been experienced everywhere else, specifically in large, you know, successful metropolitan coastal cities and states, is coming here in one fell swoop. And it is wreaking havoc on things that people have been building for decades. The interior Northwest, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, I know people outside of the place, outside of these places think we're walking around in like Stetsons and spurs on our boots and like, you know, shooting rabbits. Some of us, sure, and that's fine. But we are also, you know, we also had some of the most egalitarian um, cities and towns and some of the lowest um, differences between rich and poor. And that was largely fostered by you know, good paying union jobs. And I think the construction of our, our cities and towns and our countryside in a, in a way that was built around community building. And that is fraying 
in the way America has been experiencing that, I would say, for the last 40 years, as has Montana. But it is coming to us so much more aggressively Mm -hmm. right now, right as we are speaking. And that is upending decades of presumptions about what it means to be a Montanan, about what it means to be a member of our community. And and we are at at a turning point that is we could go one way and we just become what we become um, Aspen, which is great if you have a billion dollars. Right. Or we should go another way and we become a different place. And we, we have done what we've done for a hundred years, which is stake out a particularly Montanan view on what it means to be a part of the American community. And I really think part of our small communities out here. Yeah. We we've had, there's, we've had a lot of growth. We're ha- having a lot of growth in my town. And we're mm-hmm. a small town, but we um, finally have this development coming in. And so property values are going up for like our house was 200, a little over $200,000 when we bought it. And the new places are like $500,000 or $400,000. And, and they're not huge, not like those places that you're talking about necessarily. Uh, and, you know, my feeling is that's great, but we made a promise not just to those newer homeowners, but to the people here, they need to benefit from better services. Um, do you... Do you think that the representatives now, and I know like in Montana, you have a Republican legislature. Um, do you think maybe they're missing that, right? Like that maybe because of the kind of representation that's there, that it's a part-time legislature. So the people who can choose to run may not be affected in the same way that um, others could be affected, like in daily life as teachers or nurses, et cetera. Do you think they're just not feeling it and seeing it in the same way that someone like you, a union family might see? You're walking right into my trap. Uh-oh. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, I think Bart, you spoke, and I don't want to speak for either of them. You spoke with my former colleagues, um, representatives Karjala and Bissett, and I imagine they said similar things. Um, I especially sat next to um, my Barb, Barbara Bissett, good mm-hmm. friend of mine, the legislature, and we were both probably the younger, if not, well, there was a cohort of, of younger people who were getting involved. But there was a large stretch between there and then the attorneys, ranchers, and landlords who otherwise work in our legislature. And it was the difference between what we viewed our job and our role representing our community. And I would say, honestly, what many of the people who were my former colleagues viewed as their job, which was not representing their community, it was representing their business interest. And I, 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 am, I will forthrightly say that the kind of petty corruption that I saw, and I know that they did too, was uh, at first ridiculous, mm-hmm. honestly. Like, it just seems so dumb. And, and that was, and that was me coming to it, not as a, you know, I was fresh to it and I just like scoffed. And then I realized that those, that this kind of petty self-dealing on the part of many of our state representatives across the country is a reason so many people don't want to be involved in the process. And it was demoralizing Mm -hmm. to watch people like to essentially watch some of my colleagues who I hold in esteem, regardless of their party, like try and legislate around their buddies short-term um, storage unit business to try and legislate away a competitor. Like that is just, I, I, there's two reasons that that bothers me. And I think there's two, and to your question about that, about whether or not it makes it, it makes it a different body, the legislative body, if you can't, or you're not really paid. And yes, it does because there's people who are there for, I think business interests and there's people who are there who are, for, who are there for honestly a little bit more pure interests. And I hope I was on the purer side. So, um, yeah, the the I would is such an unpopular opinion amongst the electorate until you talk to them, which is, you know, we need to 
legis- your representatives, especially in small states with volunteer legislatures, we need to really think about, rethink in the modern era when not only young people can be involved, but people who don't have a lot of money can be involved, when there aren't structural barriers to women or fathers or mothers or people who are non-binary or Native Americans to be involved. Mm-hmm. That means that this, the structure is straining at this point. Because the presupposition was that all of us could afford to go to Helena for four months every two years and then serve on interim committees and go back and forth all the time. In the modern era, who is that person but a rich person? And that is the problem. And it is a fundamentally conservatizing force for our states. And I just, you know, I I don't want to be on the record saying, like, God, we should really pay our legislators more. But God, we should really make sure that they are they feel safe and secure in doing this job. Because otherwise, you're only going to get your landlord or your boss. You're not going to get your colleague or your neighbor. Well, maybe you don't want to say it, but I think you should pay your legislators more. And I, I think you should pay your legislators more. And I mean, yes. especially because you're running for Congress, so it's not about you anymore. It's about you're talking about government. To talk, you know, that's true. For me, that's true. I have a council meeting tonight. I'm going to walk to the council chambers, and it's convenient for me. And it's why young we have a younger council. And I think for uh-huh. you know, so with speaking of which, we need more younger people in office because government should be representative it's not a resume builder right it's not like well we need the person who has ceo experience or this or that how would you encourage more what would your, be your advice to young people that want to run for office <laughs> uh don't do it but do this is speaking directly to the people you're talking to in your listenership this has been um being involved in public service has been the worst and best thing i have ever done in my life and the lives of the people around me and my family, I hope. I have, uh, and especially during this this tumultuous time. Right. There, in my, it was, it honestly, it was wrenching to make changes in my life to accommodate the ability to campaign 24-7 without pay. That was tough. I had to move into my sister's basement for a while. But I honestly believe, and especially in most states where this wouldn't be required, you know, your school board elections, your your state legislative seats and Senate seats, oftentimes they are overlooked by the people who are harming you and your community. They think so little of you and they think so little of us and they think so little of the process that they are throwing people up there to run who are imbeciles. They have no and also have no interest mm-hmm. in actually serving their community and they won't take the pains to listen to your neighbors that you will. And so people always, I often think that it's so insurmountable. And I want to acknowledge the challenge because it was very challenging for me and others financially. And that is a thing that you need to make the choice and take the risk if you wish to do so. However, that it's your opposition, regardless of party, if you were challenging entrenched interests, the odds of your opposition being at the very least complacent, at the very most completely detached from reality or concern for your neighbors, leaves an opening in this time in our history, I think, for us to make a lot of change. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to run, my God, I am begging you, call me, email me. Our campaign will help you, but not politically. We'll help you on the side, meaning like we will assist you in getting the resources you need. And we have done this in the state of Montana. And we have seen a, honestly, it's a, we're a small state with not very many people elected to office. We have seen a raft of people who constitute really a new generational leadership. And that is the, hopefully my my call my hopefully my future colleagues and people who are working in 
other offices in the state who are new to office, hopefully they stay in it and they will be in, you know, their public service and the lives of the people they, they represent will be, will be assisted for the next couple decades. How do you it's think, a way to do it. how do you think the government would be different if, if we had a higher ratio of younger people and younger people is like twenties and thirties. So it's not, yeah. you know, it's not just like fresh out of college and it's not just yeah. about younger Democrats though. That's what we would prefer. But like, what do you think state and federal government would look like if we had a lot of younger candidates changing that narrative? Well, there'd probably be fewer insurrections. Hopefully. <laughs> I mean, you know, we all know, I think, and I'm 35, so I'm, I'm aging into, I saw someone yesterday who had seen me for um, three years and I have gone gray. And I was like, she was like, what happened to you? And I said, well, I, I, I got elected to the state yeah. house. <laughs> but I'm also 35, so I'm on the older edge of young. So I don't want to speak for a cohort that's actually somewhat, um, somewhat rising, actually, and hopefully overtaking me. But you know, not aside from policy, which I think we can step away from, there would be fundamental reforms to our government that would make it more accessible in the 21st century. We wouldn't be so afraid of change, even in just the smaller sense of like you know, making it so you can go online to get to reserve a spot at the DMV. I mean, I know that seems small. That is something that keeps a lot of people, especially people who don't have very much money from being able to renew their tags and then they get pulled over and it redounds and it ends up impoverishing people. The small things that we can do to make government more accessible using the tools at our disposal, apart from policy, are, are myriad and, and they would be there and they'd be instituted quickly. What I found is so disappointing is our, like, we were radically changing every aspect of our government up until about World War II, mm -hmm. if not later. You know, we were expanding Congress. Then we were making, we were setting Congress at 435. Technically, according to the founders, now there should be like a 1,500 Congress people. We were, you know, we were, there was always this tinkering with our democracy for the better. And everything has been set in amber, I would say, by the previous couple generations above us. And it is, you know, we are edging quickly into uh, gerontocracy with the, the age of the leadership at the national level. I'm not so sure it's healthy for a country and a world that is undergoing profound changes and, and also like once in a millennia challenges like climate change to have people who will not be alive to see Miami underwater or my towns on fire. Mm -hmm. And that is a, the urgency that people like you and I, I think, feel around issues around climate change, but also around equity and justice in our communities. Those are felt in different ways. And oftentimes I disagree by everyone our age and our reactions can be, and they can sometimes I deeply oppose them, but I think they're animated by this same sense of urgency and understanding that we are stuck and younger people being involved would definitely at least unstick the process. So that something could happen. Yeah. And I just, I, I, that's why I also would beg anyone who's listening to this to get involved. We have the tools at our disposal to fix these issues and we have done it before. It just so happens the last about 40 years, we've decided not to. And that, that's our legacy, but it's not our future. That's a, that's a really good that's line. It's not our future. So. Yeah. Write that down. <laughs> Remember that. <laughs> um, and, you know, you, um, climate change issues and taking it seriously sometimes is not just a partisan issue though it is a lot of the time but it's also a geographic issue and i know like um because i'm in the east coast so you know there's a lot of people who notice the problems of you know rising storms or sea level rise is it's a big issue in montana too right 
for agriculture and other things, what, how does that impact, as they would say, with the Midwest or heartland of America? Okay, so when I, before it started, before it snowed two and a half feet and got to be minus 20 like normal, it was 65 degrees in early December in the northern Rockies along the Canadian border in Montana. That's just, uh, you don't have to be a genius to know that that's really bad. Mm-hmm. The water that is, and it, the, also the peaks were bare. And one of the things that I think, especially if I, a quick primer for Easterners on a place with lack of water, because you guys have, I envy the fact that you have so much greenery, as does everyone in the West. Uh, the water on our mountains and the, locked in the snow of the, of the previous winter gets drinking water to Portland and Seattle, and it waters the fields that get you the lettuce for your salad, and it feeds the cows that give you your steak and your burger, and it gives you food. We are the storage tank for much of the West, and if our peaks are bare in December, your water tank is not going to be full in August. Mm -hmm. And so we, we often, I find... In living in a more marginal environment, and I don't mean Montana's marginal in a negative sense, I mean it is more difficult for current society to live where we are because the resources are more scarce. Right. Natural resources are more scarce. We oftentimes I feel like we're sometimes the canary in the coal mine. I, I like so over the summer, my house um, came within like a half mile of the wildfire. Uh, and the the out west, for the first time is my in my understanding and theirs. They were just doing containment if possible. I'm a proactive approach of fighting fire to protect structures and lives. And they told me, I was like, well, when's the fire going to be over? Is it going to come and burn down my, me and my neighbor's house? I was terrified, as was everyone else. Like, I mean, I'd never been in a situation like that. And I never hoped to be again. And I never thought it would happen. But it was, and it didn't even burn my house down. And the response was the weirdest thing I'd ever heard, which was, you know, we just think it's probably going to burn for the next two months. And that is unheard of Mm. in modern, in the last hundred years. And so what I think from the perspective, I'm getting off on climate change. I'm getting off topic here. I guess my biggest thing that I can say for people in the East, and I understand you have, you all have your different experiences of climate change that are going to harm you and your communities very much. What we are going to see are these catastrophic moments, like in Paradise, California, the town that burned down. Remember that California is what? The richest state in the country with vast resources, a complicated and lively media landscape, an activist government that is democratic, but also just you know, doing things, right. regardless of what you think they're doing. They were unable to protect Paradise. And afterwards, Paradise is gone, the town. It's helpful that it's named Paradise because it sounds so mm-hmm. lost. But Montana is not that. And the largely impoverished or low-income cities and towns in the Rocky Mountains, in the forests, are not prepared for what's going to happen to us. And we are going to lose these communities. They will burn in the next 10 years. And they're in my district. And I know for a fact, as do the people that live here, and an animating force of much of our politics is that no one is going to come and help us. And no one will really care. And it's just going to be gone. And that understanding of what we're about to be hit with animates a lot, I think, of what we see in terms of the extremism out here, but also I think some of the, the, the really, maybe it's idealistic, but the hope that the dire straits we're in will lead to a change for the better. And I, I just, I cannot tell you how much, what is at stake, and it might seem small in the case of other places, but 
It's towns that people have lived in for a hundred years. And they, and, you know, and generations of families have been there and they have downtowns and they have Walmarts and they have bars and restaurants, coffee shops and parks. That's going to be gone and no one is going to help us. And I, I just, that is what climate change looks like where we are. And, and it is, it is terrifying. And it, it, I don't know as a hopeful leader of my community, what to say other than like, we are in this together and we need to make sure that the rest of the country understands what we face out here because it's coming to you as well. I mean, I have some chills hearing that and I don't disagree with you at all. Um, but one thing that really stuck out is about how people don't think that anyone's coming for them, but you, you are paying attention to this um, and how that can lead to extremism. Do you think that having a candidate like yourself and not like you're going to fix this, but having other Democrats take those issues seriously on the small town level and showing that they're paying attention and care it's not going to be the antidote, but do you think it's part of an antidote like to uh, against extremism to show a, like sincere caring for some of these forgotten areas? It's my job. Mm-hmm. It's the job of every person in government right now, especially in places racked with extremism like Montana. Uh, we have a weird situation too, where you know these. Honestly, I, I was about to like be weird because I always have this thing where I want to be polite, but I don't need to be polite to white supremacists or white nationalists. Mm-hmm. There's these idiots up in the hills who move from wherever, you know, they like get this infatuation with white power or whatever else stupid thing they're doing. And they, you know, they live in the suburbs of Cleveland or whatever, and they get this whole idea in their head that they're going to move to the middle of nowhere in Montana and make some sort of utopia uh, for mostly white men only. Right. They live in the hills. They're idiots. We mock them when they come into town to resupply their weird little places. And until that was the way it went. And they were like local curiosities that often caused problems. And I'm not diminishing the threat of white supremacy. I'm saying in the lived experience of Montana, they were awful and terrible, but also like mockable in their lack of power and their stupidity. But now what they are, are radicalizing forces in our cities and towns Mm -hmm. because Trump, because of our media landscape, what was before a group of uh, clueless looking weirdos in the parking lot who you would flip off and you would protest against because they were talking about white power are now people using direct Nazi imagery on our streets. And they're not, they are the people who are now a radicalizing force for my pop, for my community rather than an outlier. And that is, uh, you know, and I, I, so that's a, the background to your answer. And I, sorry, I'm talking so much, but I guess it's a podcast. It's okay. um, <laughs> well, I should talk. Uh, that is the threat we face specifically, which I don't think other places do. That we haven't, we already have this really this this network of crazy people, crazy, awful, irredeemable racists who I have no interest in reforming because mm-hmm. they are such a small group. But the problem is that faced, if you bring them into this tinderbox where we have communities that are very clearly going to be abandoned by the federal government and our our national culture at large, and they know it, the people saying, "Well, wait a minute, I care about you." I have, a, I have a worry for our community, and it just so happens that in their conception, our community is white men, which is disgusting, but it has resonance, I believe, and it, it's, they, are, they are stepping into the void of civic institution building that we have not done for the last 40 or 50 years, and so I really do, in my legislative race, I, I, um, and there is a direct line, obviously, between Trump and white supremacy, but I... I had ran as a progressive Democrat in a district that had voted for President Trump plus 11 points. And 
one of the, I did not think we would win and we did, but one of the things that I volunteers, everybody viewed our job was to knit the community back together. There was no one going door to door and relaying the concerns of a neighbor to a neighbor. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just like, I'm a Democrat. I'm terrified to be around Republicans or vice versa. It was like, I haven't spoken to my neighbor in five years or no one has come to my door, but the delivery guy. And so we were doing things like doing wellness checks on the elderly. Uh, you know, it was these types of, it sounds maybe banal is the word or prosaic, but this type of institution building and community building that politics is supposed to be has not been done for a while. And all it takes is one or two well-constructed, thoughtful community and people first campaigns or institutions. It doesn't have to be politics necessarily to be knitting people back together and providing an alternative to these these groups that are intent on, I mean, white power, I don't know how else to say it. They are the threat, but it's just not insurmountable. It just takes like, all you have to do is like knock 10,000 doors, quit your job and run for office. Well, and the more people that do it, the e- it's easier if you're not the only one doing it, I'm sure. So that's the thing. That's yeah. the thing. Yeah. And, and, and that's, and it's not only in Montana, it's in every state to some extent. Mine, I have a neighbor down the block from me who proudly was at the insurrection and, um, you know, and I, I stay away from it as much as I can, but you know, he has made threats that we are all aware of on our council. And I'm sure yeah. you have to deal that with that at a higher level in, in your, in your area. Um, yeah, I, you look person, uh, elected, uh, former elected official to current elected official. It, and I think for people listening who want to do this, it takes courage to do what you're doing and have someone say, you know, people said they want to burn down my house and stuff. I like laugh it off, but it was scary. Mm-hmm. And what you is vital. And I, it's you were taking on a community, a risk that you don't have to. So, you know, thank you for doing that. And may your neighbor quickly be arrested for entering the Capitol building. Well, I think he may have stopped there. I've looked at all the pictures and I haven't seen them. But I have looked at pictures of you, and I am sure that if you're not Tom from MySpace, maybe you're going to be in the next Thor movie as a uh, um, stunt double or something. I don't know. But you are um, going to – you could be the face of Montana in Congress in 2023. You are running um, and trying to get people together to knit these communities together. If people are interested in following you, getting some motivation, getting some real talk, getting some help, or, or being involved – how and where should they follow you online? Uh, okay, so I am, um, that's the thing. We are online necessarily because of the pandemic and otherwise, though it is no um, substitution for real life. So at Winter4MT, W-I-N-T-E-R-F-O-R-M-T uh, on Twitter. And then we're on Facebook. Look, I, what am I saying? Just literally Google Tom Winter Montana. There's like five people in Montana anyway, so you'll find us. And I, I would really There's more than five people because you added a congressional district. You were bigger well, than Wyoming. District, you were... but, you know, there's there's more people probably like in your county than there are in the state of Montana. When there I, like, are about eight hundred thousand people in Montgomery County. <laughs> yeah, there's a million people in Montana, so there you go. Yeah. Um, but you are growing. You are bigger than a lot of other states right now, and it's a first time in a while you've had two. Like my wife is from Rhode Island; they barely kept two seats. Um, and there are a number of uh, you know you're bigger in North Dakota or South Dakota or um, a bunch of you might have more people there than in Rhode Island right now. Um, I of course always say we're a big boy state now. Yeah. Let's go, just growing and growing. Well. And for everyone listening, winter is coming, and winter might be coming to Congress, especially if you follow Tom on Twitter. Follow him everywhere. Google him, Tom Winter4MT. Thanks, Tom, and I wish you the best of luck, and also uh, happy holidays. Likewise. Take care, okay?